Good morning, everybody. Welcome uh, to St. Paul's Blur Street. Thank you for taking the time to join us today, especially if you're new, uh, spiritually searching. Welcome to those of us joining online. Not that I ever watch them, but there are countless TikToks and top 10 lists to help you spot a toxic person, frequently ending with the advice that the only solution is to cut them out of your life. And while I, I don't think the end goal with every difficult relationship is to ditch it, uh, fighting and, and conflict in all its different versions can absolutely drain our lives of happiness, let alone any joy that we have maybe been able to cultivate. That, you know, internal fighting in our minds, right? The stuff that keeps you up at night or can paralyze with anxiety. The obvious fighting between friends and spouses, you know, minor, cap on the toothpaste kind of stuff. And then major, right? Sex, drugs, money. The kind of fighting that gets scaled up into social media bullying. And then, of course, the apex of fighting, nuclear war, which is a reality with us again. We're on uh, week three of our teaching series, Joy in Everything working our way through a letter that Paul of Tarsus, an early Christian writer, wrote to a small Christian community, smaller than St. Paul's Blur Street, in a Greek city called Philippi. And Paul wrote this letter while he was imprisoned by Roman authorities for his incredible success in spreading the good news about Jesus. And we're unpacking what relevance this hopeful and realistic letter has for our daily lives. In our first week, uh, Tyler showed how happiness and joy are not the same thing, with God promising us joy, but not necessarily happiness. And last week, we looked at how our definition of the purpose of our life significantly impacts whether you find joy or not. And you can catch up on YouTube if you miss them. And in our, our section today from Philippians that Dan read for us, we're going to see the connection between decreasing unnecessary conflict in our lives and increasing joy and practically how Paul thinks we can do that how it's pretty basic for Paul decrease conflict increase joy so decrease unnecessary conflict increase joy and how Paul thinks we can do that and while the letters of Paul in the New Testament and the, the rich theology and wisdom they contain are indisputably some of the most influential things ever written, Paul is no ivory tower academic. He's rolling up his sleeves in the dirt of real life. And as he writes, literally in chains, he's become aware of some fighting, some conflict, in this small Christian uh, community. We're never really told what it's about, uh, but two women do get called out at the end of the letter, which we're gonna see in a few weeks. And this fighting, whatever it is, is stealing Paul's joy. Verse one, if then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, Make my joy complete, be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Make my joy complete, says Paul. Please be of one mind. Uh, it reminds me 
of the recently reported uh, words of King Charles to his two warring sons. Please, boys, don't make my final years a misery. And like a Charles, Paul wants whatever fighting is taking place to stop so that his joy in having been able to share the good news with them in the first place is, is not damaged. And he wants that same joy, even in the midst of the struggles of first century life, he wants it for them because he loves them. Decrease the conflict, increase the joy. So what does Paul prescribe? Verse 2, do nothing from a self-ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Humility. Humility is the key for Paul if we want to decrease conflict and increase joy. In humility, regard others as better than yourselves. The person sitting next to you, have a glance. They're better than you. Now, it's good to define terms because we probably have different ideas about what counts as humble. Right? For some, we assume that quiet, introverted people are like more humble than the extroverted A-types, right? Or after winning, we perceive someone as humble if rather than showboating, they jog to the bench. Or instead of like a humble brag on social media, a person deflects praise and points towards the work of others. And, and these, of course, can all certainly be part of what it means to be humble. But the Christian understanding of humility is really specific, rooted in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul continues, next verse. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. A Christian understanding of humility, the kind that's going to decrease conflict, is rooted in how a carpenter from Nazareth lived, died, and rose again, not focusing on himself, but doing everything for us, doing everything for the city of Toronto, for, for the whole world. English writer C.S. Lewis summed it up well. True humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Humility is not about letting yourself be a relationship doormat or embracing emotional self-flagellation. God made you. God doesn't make trash. Humility is about thinking of yourself just less of the time. And as Paul is writing to the fighting Philippians, he's getting increasingly specific about what that means and how they are to put a humility into action so as to diffuse whatever their conflict is. And he then gives an outline of the life and work of Jesus in this beautifully poetic language. And it's so beautifully written in the original Greek that scholars believe Paul is actually quoting an early Christian hymn. This is humility in action for Paul. Imagine maybe Ian and his team singing this, okay? Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself 
and became obedient to the point of death. Here's the chorus, even death on a cross. These are key verses from Philippians. And if you want to be fancy, they show what is called the kenosis of Jesus. Kenosis, the self-emptying. Jesus voluntarily emptying himself of the privileges and status of being with God the Father so he could come to earth and be one of us. This is a radical thinking of yourself less kind of humility. What does it mean for us? We can't always have happiness, but joy is on offer for the follower of Jesus. And I know some of you are spiritually searching, asking questions. How can humility lead to less conflict and more joy? Well, pride, pride's the opposite of humility. And you see, our main problem is that from the moment we're born, we think it's all about us, right? Our natural tendencies, plus a world that tells us that we are number one, masters of our own universes, right? You be you, conspire to convince us that we are the apple of everybody else's eye. This unrelenting focus on ourselves, what will make us happy, is the root of all pride. And any particular issue in our lives that we find ourselves fighting about, it's usually actually not about the issue, right? The issue is the pride deep in my heart, right? Fighting over uh, putting the cap on the toothpaste is about who's going to be in control of the bathroom counter. Fighting over Crimea, fighting over Eritrea, is still about who's going to be in control. The issue is our hearts. They need transformation, and I cannot be left unsupervised to do my own open-heart surgery. What is going to root out the pride in our hearts and grow us in humility? Well, it was hinted at by Paul when he wrote that Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus died because we're great sinners. Me leader of the pack. It's the knowledge of our complete inability to successfully steer our own ship. We can steer it, okay? That's what's going to melt the pride so deeply rooted in our hearts. American writer David Zoll puts it like this. The announcement that God is not only real, but also loves you in full view of your personal reality to a sacrificial extent, it comes as a sort of shock that transforms despair into hope. Two weeks ago, Tyler defined joy as the emotional response to God's grace, God's love poured out for us on the cross. And this comes as a shock, right? Like it's a shock that we actually need God's grace desperately need it, like far more than we care to admit. And it's shocking that considering what I'm actually like, God still gives it to me, something I could never earn, only receive on my knees. That shock, that emotional response is what begins to melt the pride in our hearts. And it's the only way that I know to grow in humility, thinking of yourself less. 
and others more. Let's wrap up by grasping what this increased humility would look like in our daily life, how it will decrease unnecessary conflict and hopefully increase some joy. Dietrich Bonhoeffer knew a thing or two about conflict. He was a Lutheran pastor, executed by hanging by the Nazis for his fierce resistance to their idolatrous and murderous regime. And he never underestimated how hard it is to love in community, right? Especially in the middle of conflict. And I think Bonhoeffer has earned the right for us to pay attention. In one of his most powerful books, Life Together, under no illusion about the pride in our hearts, he writes this. From the first moment when a man, pardon the, the time language, when a man meets another person, he's looking for a strategic position he can assume and hold over them. Ouch! It's not wrong. And then he writes this. I'm going to read slowly. Let's pay attention. It must be a decisive rule of every Christian fellowship that each individual is prohibited from saying much that occurs to him. To speak about a brother covertly is forbidden, under the cloak, even under the cloak of help and goodwill. Speak to God instead. Thus one may cease from constantly scrutinizing the other person, judging him, condemning him, putting him in his particular place where he can gain ascendancy over him and thus doing violence to him as a person. Only if one lets go the exasperation that God did not make this person as I would have made him and realizes that God gave me this person not to dominate and control, but as a way to find divine love. Can one find the other person an occasion of joy rather than a nuisance or an affliction? The difficult part is to accept that God did not create every person in my image. Instead, it turns out every person is made in God's image. The sooner we realize this, the better for us. The world is turned from burden into gift, and this truth crystallizes in the practice of intercessory prayer. As we grow in humility, shocked by God's graciousness towards us, as we grow in humility, when, when we do find ourselves in conflict, it's probably going to happen this afternoon, right, about something, the first thing we're going to do, the very first thing, says Bonhoeffer, is we are going to turn to God in prayer. We're going to pray for the person who's driving us crazy or has deeply hurt us. Because it's very hard to hate someone you're praying for. And since prayer is the lifeblood of our relationship with God, one of our five rhythms of life, prayer's the fuel for discerning any action we might need to take in light of the conflict. And if you've never actually been taught how to pray, and lots of people haven't, we're holding a, a Saturday half-day workshop on February 11th to look at different ways to pray. Immediately, turning to God in prayer in the face of conflict also helps us think of ourselves, right, less. It helps us see the situation from the other person's point of view and invites God's wisdom, God's perspective, maybe even God's challenge to us 
about our role in whatever the conflict is. A growing humility that manifests itself in prayer is going to help us avoid and then diffuse conflict, increasing our ability to cultivate joy. As our passage ends, Paul gives us this just marvelous glimpse of what the humility of Jesus on the cross leads to. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. That's our hope. That's why we're here this morning. That any humility gifted to us in this life is preparing us for the glory, the wonder, the beauty of one day kneeling, not groveling, kneeling before the servant king. Thanks be to God. Amen.